0: Accreditation is a status that's earned, not given. Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Children's Cancer Foundation, Christian Blind Mission, EOD Warriors Foundation. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, Go to give.org.
1: You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit, And on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode.
0: Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards based charity evaluator, and it's your one stop source for information on giving. And reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Today I get to speak to my longtime friend in the philanthropic sector, Mr. Phil Buchanan. And Phil is the CEO of the Center for Effective Philanthropy. And um, he's been in that job as long as I've been CEO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. We both started right around 9-11, if you can believe it. It's been that long. And no one seems to stay in jobs that long anymore, so we'll have to talk about that a little bit. But we're going to spend some time talking with Phil about his life, his work, um, how he sees the shift that may be going on in philanthropy as a result of the um, pandemic, and also about the effect that McKinsey Scott is having on um, people who think about giving large sums of money away and the effect that may be having on organizations. And we'll see what else we cover. Phil, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast.
2: Art, it's great to be with you.
0: Well, it's always great to be with you, my friend. So Phil, a lot to, to talk about with you always. I wanted to just start though, with this thing I just said, you've been in this job for like 20 years. I mean, That's a long time. People ask me all the time, how do you stay in a place for 20 years? I have my answer, but I'm curious what your answer is about that particular question.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm thinking back to when we first met, which I believe was like at a reception at an independent sector conference umpteen years ago. That's right. I think you had no idea who I was. I had no idea who you were. And we just ended up chatting and I thought, this is a really smart, good, fun, and decent guy, and we've stayed connected ever since. And I think that when I think back to what the Center for Effective Philanthropy was at that point, it's a completely different organization now. You know, so for the in the early years, we were four, five, six, seven people. Now we have sixty staff, so the job has changed completely. Wow! So I think that's part of what keeps it interesting and engaging. And then another part is just a sheer lack of imagination on my part about what I might do next, but also the feeling that, especially in the last few years, that there really is an opportunity to influence philanthropy for the good, and in doing that, to have an effect on Nonprofits across the country and around the world and on the issues and people that they seek to affect. And it's not direct our work. I mean, we'll talk about this where we joke sometimes, like we're the people who help the people who help the people, you know, but I think it is really important how people give really matters and you can give more or less effectively. And we're on the side of trying to get folks to, to be more effective and avoid some of the almost predictable hurdles that trip donors and foundations up again and again.
0: Yeah, well, you know, 22 years is a long time. And I'm sure that some of that has to do with the people you've had the pleasure of working with and boards in particular. No way I could be in this job if I hadn't had a series of great boards and people who absolutely support what we're trying to do and are with us as we go through those various transitions. You know, we we add on to different things. We drop some things. As you said, your organization is very different today than it was when you started. Boards have to help enable that. And I just wanted to suggest that some of that probably has to do with them and even giving us room to take some time off. I had a sabbatical and I when I heard you took your sabbatical, I said, you know, maybe I need to do a sabbatical. And my board was right there with me, said, you know, go ahead, Art, take, a, take some time off, do what you need to do. And it was wonderful. But what did you get out of yours? Because uh, we talked about this a little bit. And I think it's it's kind of a, a thing we should put out for others to consider. Giving their longtime CEOs or even people who are in the organization who have committed so much of their life to the mission some just to be away from the work for a bit.
2: Yeah. I mean, first I want to go back to what you said about boards and that couldn't, couldn't be truer. I was hired. I hope it's not impolitic to say by a totally dysfunctional board that more or less imploded within a couple of years. And then we were able to build a really high functioning board. We've had a series of great chairs and just great board culture. Um, our current chair, Tiffany Cooper guy has, uh, been the longest standing board member we've ever had because we extended her uh to get, so that she could serve as chair and you know she's not just great at facilitating meetings uh she's kind of like a coach to me just a, a wise person whose advice i seek and and without those kinds of relationships as you know the job can be a little bit a little bit lonely and it can also feel as much as we're very privileged to have the jobs we have it can feel sort of unrelenting and that's where a sabbatical comes in and, and I had wanted to work on a book project to try to package up some of what we've learned over many years in a way that was accessible, not just to the foundations that we had traditionally worked with, but also to individual donors who we were increasingly trying to influence. And so initially that the sabbatical was, was really about that. And I did get a good start on the book. Although the board said, you don't have to do that. You can take take the time in whatever way you want but it was 3 months it was the summer it was the best summer i've had in my adult life people kept saying are you going to travel and i said no all i do is travel i'm going to not travel and just be with my family and and spend time <laughs> right. on the book and we put in place a policy at that time that any employee at cep who has served for 10 years is eligible for a 3 month paid sabbatical so we've now had a number of people in a range of different roles at the organization take those sabbaticals and it it is challenging you know to cover but it is also really good not just for the individual but for the organization because inevitably when somebody go- takes sabbatical other people step up and i'm sure you saw this and they have to push themselves to play a different role and so it's great growth opportunities and i think it makes the organization more resilient and prepared for succession at various levels to have a sabbatical policy. But also it's a great perk and leads to, I think, retention of people who might otherwise not stay as long because they, they really want to enjoy that. And when they come back, we found they stay longer. They don't leave after the sabbatical. So it's been great for us.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned the book because that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. You did get the book done eventually. It's called Giving Done Right. And I wanted you to just talk to our listeners about some of the major takeaways from that writing and what really propelled you to actually take the project on to begin with.
2: Yeah, I think I was motivated by a mix of a deep sense of frustration with watching folks make the same mistakes that their predecessor foundations or individual donors had made. And I'll come back to that in a second. And then also, on the flip side, a sense of inspiration about what is possible when philanthropy is done well to support great organizations doing important work. So on that second point, I think we actually tend to take for granted, uh, just speaking domestically for a minute, all of the things that we enjoy every day that are the result of nonprofit organizations, you know, supported by uh, donors and foundations. So from, and I know we don't all enjoy this to the degree that we should, but to the extent that we're able to breathe clean air and drink clean water or swim in a clean river or walk in woods that have been conserved and protected, that's often about philanthropy and nonprofits to the extent that we don't worry about diseases that used to be severe because folks are vaccinated against them, going all the way back to things like yellow fever in, in I believe it was the 30s, and the Rockefeller Foundation's role in work on that. The progress that we've made, even though it has been in fits and starts, and sometimes it feels like we are sliding back, especially now, but in securing civil rights, human rights for people of color in this country, for LGBTQ people, there is often a philanthropic and nonprofit story behind that, that we don't celebrate enough and learn from enough. And then on the the mistake side, I just think the biggest one, not to be overly simplistic about it, is to underestimate how challenging it is to be effective in philanthropy and to overestimate the degree to which whatever helps someone make their money in business, quote unquote, business thinking, whatever that even means, applies to a world in which strategy plays out differently because the dynamics are collaborative, not competitive. Performance measurement is is really different, as you know better than anyone, because you can't boil it all down to a single metric by which we can compare one donor to another and say, well, Hewlett's ROI is three times that of XYZ Foundation. It doesn't work that way. It's much more complicated and difficult. So wanted to just to just address both sides of that in the book and and really try to give donors just some practical advice, at recognizing that there aren't easy answers. So there's a lot of nuance in this work.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about the way you think. It's always nuance. And we're in an and world. I've said that a lot of times. And we want clarity. Well, we actually want certainty. You know, everybody right. wants certainty. We can't right. have it. We can have clarity if we're able to deliver that. And to do that, it takes nuance. It takes thinking more like you're on a spectrum Mm -hmm. rather than you're this or that. And we're in a world where everybody wants or seems to be wanting to be this or that. The way you think, though, and I've seen this in a lot of the things you write, it's always, you know, let's think about this a little bit. Let's not jump on a bandwagon without giving some thought to what we're actually saying. And your writings, for instance, about charities and businesses, (laughs) you know, those really light me up because we hear so often people say, we should run our charity like a business. As if to say, if we do that, we're going to be a great charity. Because businesses have it all figured out. Right. Well, guess what? There are a lot of really bad businesses. And there are lots of things that businesses aim to do that a charity would never aim to do. Well, you go on to talk about it. But your your nuanced thinking on this helps us all better understand how wild it is for people to say certain things as though that is the that's the guidepost for how we should operate. Right,
2: right. Oh, totally. I mean, what business are we talking about? JetBlue, which I spent one hour and 47 minutes on hold with yesterday. The dry cleaner, Google, like it's not a meaningful phrase. People use it to mean effectiveness, but there's a lot of ineffective businesses just like there's ineffective everything. I think it was Jim Collins who said we should reject uh, the idea That business thinking is the answer. I'm paraphrasing because most businesses, like most of everything in life are mediocre. So why would we want to import the practices of mediocrity into the social sector? So yeah, so I feel, I feel really strongly about that. And it plays out in issues that you care so much about, like the overhead question. So I was, I was listening to your great highly recommend solo podcast that you did recently just trying to help educate people about about the nuance here and it's it is true that we should be very very careful not to judge organizations based on say a single ratio. It is true that organizations can achieve more impact sometimes by investing in things that might be labeled, quote unquote, overhead. But it is also true that how a budget is allocated within an organization matters. And if you have two organizations uh, doing more or less the same thing, and one is able to do it more efficiently than another, or one's able to raise the same amount of money, but more efficiently than the other, it is rational and logical for a donor to want to understand that. And so we just have to avoid these like overly simplistic binaries. I feel the same way about like unrestricted support. There should be way more unrestricted support for nonprofits. The lack of unrestricted support is a huge problem. It's been like 20-80 in terms of foundation grants, 20% unrestricted. I don't know what's right, but it feels more like it should be 80-20 the other way. However, does that mean that it never makes sense for a funder to make a restricted grant or a one-year grant? Of course it sometimes makes sense, right? So, So we just have to really try to avoid these, these binaries, I think.
0: Yeah. And I love you for, for thinking that way and for helping us all think that way. Let me ask you a little bit about the work of the, of the organization, the center for effective philanthropy, which as you say, started out as one thing and now it's evolved over the years. What has it
2: become, Phil? So we try to be a resource to donors of various types that want to be more effective. And so we're about the, how the practice, of philanthropy. I mean, I've got my own views about what I wish donors were focused on, but donors, once they know what they want to do, I think struggle sometimes with how to do it well. So we started out really working with larger US-based foundations, and we were doing a couple of things, doing research on topics that were relevant to foundation leaders, like how to think about strategy in a philanthropic context when it's very different than a competitive, dynamic, or how to build strong relationships between funders and nonprofits. We were also creating various feedback mechanisms. So a lot of folks know us in the foundation world for something called the Grantee Perception Report, which allows for a funder to understand how it's being experienced by the nonprofits it supports in a candid and comparative way. And if you've got a lot of resources, you don't necessarily encounter a lot of candor from the people who might want those resources. And without the comparative data, it's hard to know what is a good rating by a nonprofit of a funder on various dimensions. So that's become widely adopted. Most of the largest foundations in the country and many smaller foundations use that tool regularly. We have a variety of other feedback mechanisms. And then we have a lot of of programming we do of various kinds blog, podcast, although we're not as prolific as, as you are, are called Giving Done Right. We're on a little bit of a pause right now because it's a lot of work to do a podcast uh, conference that we put on. Uh, we have an initiative that grew out of the grantee survey work that's called Youth Truth that works with education funders as well as school districts and others to elevate the perspective of young people in schools. That's a very interesting thing that has grown rapidly. But the biggest shifts have been in our audience. So we're now working with funders big and small, foundations big and small all around the world. And with respect to our research, we are trying to reach individual donors, not just foundations as well, because we think there's some universal truths in terms of effective giving that are as relevant to everyday givers as they are to a foundation program officer. So yeah, that's been a change. The biggest change has been our audience and a broadening of that audience.
0: So let's talk about some of those universal truths. As a funder, what should I be thinking about? What, what should be a core part of what we do organizationally to, to be effective as, as grant makers?
2: The first thing, and maybe this sounds really obvious, but I think you would attest to the fact that it's not always present, is the humility mm. to, to understand that the answers probably don't lie within your building or in the conference room with the consulting firm that you're using. you know The answers are probably out there in communities, in issue areas where organizations have been working diligently for, for many years. And that, again, seems obvious, but I, I've seen so many top-down strategies cooked up in those conference rooms that then don't hit the ground in a way that works. So really figuring out how to tap in to the knowledge, not just of nonprofits who've been working on issues or experts who've been studying issues, but often the people you're seeking to help themselves have maybe the best informed perspective of what is actually useful. So I think we've seen this. I don't mean to beat up on any particular donors because everybody makes mistakes, but I think we've seen this maybe most spectacularly in the last 15 years in terms of overestimating knowledge within the funder and underestimating the knowledge in communities in the area of public education, where, you know, you see the Gates Foundation have a lot of false starts where there's a sense that this is the answer, make smaller high schools instead of bigger high schools. And, you know, that didn't work. And then you know, we're going to tie teacher compensation to teacher evaluation and you no, know, okay, that's not quite doing it. Okay. Common core, this notion that there is like a single intervention, on a very complicated interdependent issue. And I think Mark Zuckerberg made a version of the same mistake in Newark, of thinking like, I can reinvent invent it in a way that will be a model for others. But the, the community was standing there saying, well, what about us? You know, we have a point of view. We have knowledge about really practical things. Like you just switched the schools around such that my kid now has to walk through a neighborhood that's not safe to get to school. And I could have told you that's not going to work, but nobody listened. And so I think fundamentally that humility and building in feedback mechanisms is one thing. I think that the other thing is, and it's related, is an underestimation of how crucial collaboration is. The notion that one institution acting alone is going to solve a problem that is complicated and has resisted effective intervention, that's not sane. You know, that's not going to happen. You've got to collaborate. And as we look at the examples uh, where we would maybe agree that, boy, philanthropy really contributed to positive change. Occasionally, you see something where you could say, boy, that one organization really had a disproportionate impact. And, and, And we can point to organizations that have But even in those cases, there's usually a collaboration underneath there, a group of funders, group of organizations, rowing in the same direction on something. And I think that gets underestimated time and time again.
0: And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance.
3: So when is the best time of year to donate to a charity? Well, one part of the year during the holiday season, I think that's when some organizations receive the lion's share of their donations. Some organizations may receive a third or more of their gifts in the last quarter of the year. But that's certainly not true for everyone. And I know we think about charity a lot during the holiday season. But the truth is, charities are going to welcome your donation at any time during the year. And they need money from January to December, not just during the holiday season. So when you're thinking about charity, you may want to consider to spread out your gifts. So in order to help organization at various times of the year, not just during the holiday season. The other thing to keep in mind, there are certain types of charities that rely on events to have the motivation for some to make a donation. I'm thinking of disaster relief organizations and groups that are responding to some current tragedy. They come to mind because they get the most attention after those horrible things happen, and people want to make a donation so they can help as soon as possible. But even in those instances, the need doesn't disappear when the headlines do. So if you gave to disaster months ago, that area is still in need and charities that are helping that area certainly want your support to help with recovery. So it's really throughout the year, not just the holiday season, but there are various triggers and things to keep in mind to give your donation as best as you can, when you can, at all times during the year.
0: So as I think about foundations, this is, this is kind of a funny aside. Yeah, I'm, I've never worked in a foundation, but there are two things that I just want to you just kind of pop out here a little bit. One is that it's so difficult. For an average organization to actually find anybody in one of them to make to even get a question answered about a grant. I mean, so many foundations seem to have these policies that say we don't accept unsolicited proposals and I and I asked myself well how do you actually find new ideas that might be worth supporting if you're not open to receiving ex- from people except those you know somehow I don't and most people most of us can't figure out how to get to know them anyway so I'm just that's neither here nor there the other one is you know, I'm really stuck, and I know you are too, on this whole idea that report that the board source organization put out about <laughs> board leadership in foundations and how it continues to be overwhelmingly white men that run these organizations that run these boards and and that are on these boards. They know it. They know it's a problem and they don't do anything about it. it. It just makes me like wild to think, why won't you do anything about it? It's not like, are you telling me you can't find people? Because no one's ever asked me to serve on a foundation board. I think I'd be pretty good at it. I'm on a lot You're of boards. Great. You would <laughs> what I'm saying? So I, I don't understand why they won't fix that. And I'll give you one small example. My college had a similar problem. Franklin and Marshall College. And they made me the chair. We had, I was the only black on a board of like 33 people at one point. And he said, we got to fix that. So they made me the chair of the governance and nominations committee. And today, one third of our board are people of color. And we did that over like a four year period. So it's doable. Right. And guess what? The school's not like out of business you know, we're doing well, you know, we're, (laughs) people still want to go to Franklin and Marshall, you know? So it's, it's kind of amazing, Phil. What is it? Do you know of any, what are you seeing that would make these folks say, nope, we know it's a problem, but we're not going to fix it. We don't want to fix it.
2: Well, it is really frustrating. And (laughs) you know, let me take a circuitous route and say, when the pandemic hit and the racial justice reckoning followed the murder of george floyd we were asked by ford and some other funders to track the the ways in which foundations did or didn't shift in response um and we saw we documented like real change um in process streamlining. And we've seen it maintained, actually. And it's not just foundation self-reporting. We see it in in the data we get from nonprofits as well. The provision of of unrestricted support. Mm -hmm. But maybe the most profound shift, and this one was entirely just from surveys and interviews of foundations, was an engagement with issues of racial equity and racial justice that was different. I mean, folks said, this is different. And it was... On the process side, things like we are reevaluating the way in which, and you alluded to how opaque it is, we surface potential grantees to try to make sure we're not just going to the same crew again and again. But it was also like profoundly strategic. So this recognition of what I believe, which is that Let's just talk about the United States for a second. You cannot work in any programmatic area in this country and not engage the issues of systemic racism and because they're everywhere. And the data tells us they're everywhere in terms of environment and who lives exposed to pollutants and, and who doesn't, education, who gets, how discipline is meted out for the exact same, quote unquote, infractions in schools criminal justice, obvious on down the line, the history of red line, you name it. And it's not that there weren't plenty of foundations that were engaging that, but there was a surprising number that were not, right? Where you would look at a strategy, a strategy in US public education that didn't even mention race. So that seemed to shift in that moment. But when we interviewed CEOs, and this brings it to your board point, I I told you I'd get there. Mm. The CEOs said the boards are often the barrier right and we on top of that we actually saw a meaningful correlation can't prove causality but a meaningful correlation between the racial diversity of the boards and the foundation's propensity to do certain things in response to what was happening to be more focused on supporting organizations in different ways series of different different things that we documented so wow so it matters in so many ways, it changes how the institution operates, right? When you have a more diverse board. And I was hopeful for a bet there that we were really going to see change. And I'll tell you that I'm just not sure. And we don't have, I mean, I think there's one of the things we're talking about here is like, when do we go back out again, sp- particularly in the wake of the affirmative action decision right. in higher education by the Supreme Court? And the way that's playing out in foundations, when do we go back out again and try to say, like, okay, we're three years later, four years later. Is any of that momentum still there, or did it all did it all dissipate or something in the middle? But who's in that boardroom really matters? And it and the boardrooms of some foundations are are quite racially diverse. I could name some, mm-hmm. but in aggregate, they are ridiculously. White.
0: I don't get it. I mean, well, we could say I don't get it, but because I don't it, it can't be like money. Yes, we know foundation leaders get paid a little bit of money to serve on those boards. All right. Some yes, but, some no. Yeah, yeah. some yes, yeah, some no. Yeah. But it can't be that. It it can't be is it can't be like, all right, I have so much power because I'm on a on a board of a foundation because you're only one voice on this whole thing, but you can influence by being at the table. You can have some influence. I don't understand why this is such a difficult area to crack. You just don't. And like you said, the CEOs want to change it. <laughs>
2: you know? Yeah.
0: What is it? And I I wrote about this, and I said, you know, all nonprofits to some extent, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but all nonprofits to some extent get a tax subsidy because they're not paying taxes on what they do. Right. And right. The, the return is you got to contribute to society. Well, diverse taxpayers in this country are providing that subsidy. So these organizations should be thinking about including those diverse voices, those diverse voices in their leadership. We've seen some boards hire People of color as CEOs, which is wonderful. We're seeing a lot more of that. But the board thing is—is is just, I don't know. Let me stop talking about. It. <laughs>
2: no, I mean, I, I. Well, can I say one more thing about it? I mean, I think. Yeah. The CEOs were telling us the board can be a barrier, you know, some of them were telling us they want the board to be more diverse, but are they taking the risks necessary, you know, to push yeah. for that, right? Like yeah. you gotta take a little career risk sometimes and put yourself out there, right? And I agree with you. I mean, I think the CEP board is majority people of color now as of today. Fantastic. Be honest with you, that just kind of happened. I was like, yeah. oh, and so, but we enforced term limits, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes we'll make exceptions for somebody finishing out a chair, right. a term like our current chair, for example. But for the most part, it's nine years and you rotate off. I really think there's a big problem at a lot of foundations and it obviously there's there's the whole family issue. That's, that's one issue, right? And if the family is all white or predominantly white and it's majority family on the board, then, then you have fewer slots to work with. But the other thing is that even for non-family members at foundation, family foundations, and even at boards where there are no family on the board, I am stunned by how often there might be term limits like in the bylaws or on the books, but they're not enforced. And so I I have had folks tell me, oh, that guy's been on the board for 22 years and we can't wait for him to go off. I said, well, (laughs) isn't there a term? Well, he technically termed off 13 years ago, but we never enforced those. That's just not good governance. And so So I I think that's part of the issue. Like you gotta just, people have to person up and say like, okay, you had your run. It was good. We celebrate you. And now it's time for new leadership in the boardroom. And you can make the same argument about CEOs too. And and Mm -hmm. I say that fully cognizant of the fact that I've been in this role for 22 years. So, but there's a time for change.
0: Well, we could go on about this one as we have in different conversations. Let's talk about Mackenzie Scott. She is kind of flipping our notions of what great big philanthropy should be doing and how they should be distributing those resources. I think there's probably people out there who applaud and other people who you know sort of poo-poo it. What is your thinking about Mackenzie Scott and her work? And is it really having an effect on how other grant makers and wealthy individuals, for that matter? Think about contributing to society, particularly with their wealth.
2: Yeah, great questions. I mean, we received at CEP a gift from McKenzie Scott. Best phone call I've ever had. And then we talked with our board. A couple of board members said, well, this is the most interesting natural experiment in philanthropy. Because these gifts are, in our current sample and the research we're doing on this, which I'll talk about in a second, we're talking like five, six million dollars at the median the median grant size for the foundations that do the grantee perception report with us is like, I don't know, it's like between $100,000 $150,000, right? So it's just like a whole other world. And I'm, I'm talking now about, not about the latest McKinsey Scott effort, which is this competitive open call for organizations with between $1 and $5 million budgets, which is a very different process. And it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But I'm talking about the, often out of the blue, massive gifts that she started making in 2020. We got our gift in 2021. And then we set out to study, well, what's happening to these organizations? It's a three-year study. Year one report is on our website. And then cep.org, year two report will come out on Giving Tuesday. What we're seeing is, this is no surprise, massive positive impact on these organizations in terms of in sort of every way, ability to strengthen internal operations, culture, climate, ability to expand programmatic work, reach more folks, ability to shore up financial sustainability for the long term, innovation, piloting new programs, greater ability to collaborate. But we're also seeing from funders, and this was a component of the year two study, kind of mixed feelings from other funders. So some folks will say, yeah, she's had some influence on us. It's been mostly positive. But then also we have a majority of folks expressing concerns about her giving. These are foundation people we talked to, some folks at United Ways, some folks at community foundations in addition to private foundations. And some of the concerns are a little bit, I don't know, kind of make you sit up straight because it's like, did you really say that? Right. So people say things like, we don't think these organizations can handle That kind of infusion of resources. Or the grassroots organizations that she's sometimes supporting, you know, aren't ready and they don't have the capacity. And so that's a pretty interesting set of things to say. And it comes along with some predictions about, well, they're going to run into problems. Other funders are going to pull back. They're going to hit a financial cliff. And I can't tell you, I know definitively that all of that is wrong, but I can tell you that in two years of studying the hundreds of organizations and looking at how it's going, so far, there is no evidence that those problems are arising. So for example, on this idea that a lot of people have that other funders will pull back once they see, it's the opposite. These organizations are saying they're raising more money now than they did before, that it's helped them more than hurt them uh, in fundraising. On this notion that, oh, there'll be a financial cliff, You know, they'll staff up and then they won't be able to sustain it. Well, the leaders are saying, look, this gift has a really different dimension to it than almost any other grant that we get, which is there's no end date. So we can use it whenever we want. And so for that reason, we're planning to make sure that there's not a financial cliff and we're putting some aside and we're staffing up very carefully to make sure that we can bring in other revenue over the long term. So it's interesting to see that so far... It has been essentially nothing but positive for these organizations on all kinds of different dimensions. Yes, there are isolated anecdotes and stories of organizations that have had problems, but in the aggregate data set, it's been really, really positive. Does that mean everyone should give like Mackenzie Scott? Of course not. But to the extent that, for one reason, not everybody could if they wanted to. Almost nobody could because uh, people don't have that those kind of resources. But we can all learn from this. And, and one of the things I think we can learn... Is maybe some of the assumptions we have about the skills and abilities of nonprofits and their leaders, particularly organizations that have been carefully vetted, maybe those assumptions need to be questioned because maybe organizations can handle more than we think they can. And that might change how even those of us who are giving at a smaller level or those foundations that are giving at a smaller level approach their relationship with those organizations.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, Great answer. And I hope that foundations listening hear this and use it because obviously here was an opportunity for someone to do something very different than what we've seen. You should learn from it. You know, don't just assume it was a bad thing. So, all right. So here's here's my last sort of theme I wanted to run by you before we, we have to sign off today. So I have to give a talk next week. A student of mine who was an executive at Hearst, retired and started a business to help the marketplace better understand the value of people 55 and older, Hmm. recognizing that this group is wealthy. It is still vital. They're going to live a lot longer than anticipated. There's a lot they can contribute and society should look at them differently. He asked me if I'd come up to his conference and give a talk on how philanthropy and aging uh, should connect. So what should I tell people at this phase in their lives about how they should intersect with philanthropy? And I thought I would maybe ask you to give me a couple pointers on what I might want to say to a group of now uh, people who are maybe in the fourth quarter of their lives and they have more time, they have more resources. They still have energy. They still want to make a difference. What should I say to them about the future and what they can maybe contribute to our world over the next 25 years if they approached it in a logical and thoughtful way?
2: Wow, that's a big question. I I think, and I've heard you allude to this research, the evidence is clear that giving money and time will make you happier. It will bring meaning and fulfillment to your life that you wouldn't otherwise have. And I think that having that as a legacy is maybe, well, is definitely more powerful than just passing along whatever resources you have amassed to your kids. And kind of an aside here, and this is just anecdotal, I don't, I'm I'm out of my element in terms of Of this, but I feel like it can often do more harm than good to give kids resources that they don't really need, right? So, what a great example to set to just try to live like Chuck Feeney, who recently died, leaving this incredible legacy of someone who gave, I'm not sure if he was a billionaire ever technically. I think he would have been had he not put everything into the foundation, lived in a modest apartment and driven a 10 year old Toyota or whatever, and leaves this incredible legacy of institutions and of good work. And I, I wish that as a society, we put folks like him on a pedestal more than the folks who are building yet another 40,000 square foot house or, or whatever it is. So I just think that there's so much joy and happiness and, and such a powerful legacy to be found in really dedicating yourself in that way to giving back. One other, if you allow me, just one other point on this kind of a flip side, because I'm a member of the board of National Council on Aging, which is a really great organization focused on the idea that it's a human right to age well and that certain people in this country in particular. And once again, we see people of color, women, LGBTQ people disproportionately don't get the opportunity to age well and One of my frustrations is that there isn't more philanthropy focused on that because we're all going to get old. And as a society, I think it tells, well, I think it says a lot about our society, how we treat our fellow citizens who are in that fourth quarter of their lives. And right now we're not doing very well on that dimension. So I think that that's important as well.
0: That's a great example. You've just given me my talk. (laughs) No, seriously, because you know I think about what Michael is doing, Michael Clinton with Roar Forward, this organization, and it's about, well, you have this power to do more at this phase in your life. But there's still many people in that quarter of their lives who don't have that power, right. who never had that power and who are going to need probably more help today than they needed 20 years ago. And, and what are we willing to do to help those of our peers, right, who yes. are in this cohort and who will be suffering and struggling and crawling, so to speak, the finish line? So I want to make sure I, I mention that and I'll, I'll look at the work that's being done at the, your organization and just see what kind of data I can pull to help them appreciate the struggle and the challenge and maybe what they might be able to do about it as part of their philanthropic portfolio. And there are probably lots of things people can do.
2: Yeah. NCOA.org. I think it is national accounts on aging. Ramsey Alwin is the CEO and is just a terrific leader and advocate for older adults.
0: Phil, this has been terrific. And I wanted to also mention your podcast. I know you have it been on hold now, but there's some great episodes out there. Tell people about it real quick.
2: Oh, thanks. Yeah. My colleague, Grace Nicolette, and I host a podcast called Giving Done Right. It's aimed at individual donors. We got three seasons. We're planning a fourth season and really just designed to help donors learn what they need to do to be more effective with their charitable giving.
0: Wonderful. Well, listen, we'll have to get you on here again sometimes. I, I would love to maybe talk to you again about data that comes out on Giving Tuesday. Always, my friend, it's it's wonderful to to spend time with you and to get into your big brain and see what you've been thinking about. And you've given all of us now a lot to think about. So I, I really appreciate you doing this. And to all of our listeners, if this is the first time that you've come across this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe. There've been lots of episodes. We release this every Tuesday, Heart of Giving podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. If you want to support us, we'll we'll gladly accept A gift of any size, you can go to give.org, our website, and make a donation there. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening.
1: You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. B-E-A-N Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.